Hey, babe, can you go get my little book for me? I did it again. <laughs> I mean, I could do it without it, but it's very helpful to have it. I have a little note that I, a little book that I write notes in that have to do with a sermon, and somehow I managed to leave it sitting on my desk, I guess, uh, this morning. Uh, and hopefully she'll be able to find it. If not, we're just going to have to do this without it, which we can do. There you go, the gray one, yep. It's wonderful to have such a forgiving and <laughs> understanding wife. She, she knows. She knows me better than you guys do, and she knows this kind of stuff is getting to be a lot more common for me as far as my memory goes. And, and I'm trusting that most of you can relate to that in some maybe even a remote way, but it becomes becoming more and more a part of the life that I live. But we are in John chapter 19 this morning. And uh, we're going to actually start reading in, in, in verse 23, and we're going to read down through verse 30. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see uh, whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them and from my clothing they cast garments. Now this is where we're going to pick up this morning. So the soldiers did these things but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took, her to, be, uh, took his, her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all uh, was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it uh, to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We've been talking about this now for weeks. We talked about the scourging of Jesus probably three or four weeks ago. We've been talking about the crucifixion now for the last week or two. And the reason we decided, or I decided to do it this way, is it's so easy for us to just kind of breeze through this right around the Christmas or, or the, the Easter season. And so what I determined to do this year was to, to enter into a more detailed, more thorough consideration and study of these passages in John that relate to the, uh, the, uh, the trial and the death, the crucifixion and the death of Christ. With a hope that for all of us, and maybe in particular those of us that have been doing this now for a very long time, that we would have a, new, a renewed appreciation and understanding uh, and a depth of these things that maybe we've never had before. 
mean, we've been over this ground so many times in the past, it would be very easy for us just to skim right through it like we typically do without it giving it time to soak uh, in, in, in deep with us. We've talked about the necessity of Christ being crucified because where we left him last week was he was hanging there on the cross. He was still alive. He had endured uh, some of the, a lot of the torment that was uh, on his plate. And we've argued from Scripture in a, club of, a few places that it was necessary, absolutely necessary, that Jesus not only die, that G- but Jesus would die in the manner in which he died, that he ha- would have to be crucified. There are a number of reasons why Jesus had to be crucified. It wasn't because the Romans determined that it would be by that means because that was their typical way of execution at this particular time in history. It was something that was predetermined by Scripture itself. You think about numbers. And Scripture attested this, that that, that, uh, when... When Moses made the serpent and put it up on a pole and then the people looked up upon it, that was a prefiguring of the Christ on the cross to come. And there's some other things that fall into that category as well. But I was drawn to another verse this week as I was doing my regular reading through Scripture. I happened to be reading through the book of Deuteronomy at this point and I came upon this passage. It says this, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Peter, some people might argue, well, Jesus really was not crucified on a tree. It was crucified on a cross. But this is what the Apostle Peter says in his defense before the council, just council, the same council that condemned and had Jesus crucified, by the way, uh, just shortly before that. This is how Peter describes what took place. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed. How did you kill him? You killed him by hanging him on a tree. Just another example of the fulfillment of Scripture that we've seen over and over again as all of these things have unfolded in the life of Christ. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to focus on the physical aspects of the crucifixion of Christ at the expense of the spiritual things that were going on. We've read portions of Isaiah chapter 53 through this study of the the death of Christ. This morning I'd like to focus on three verses from that chapter. Beginning with verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, smitten by God and afflicted. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have 
turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. That is something that is very hard for us to even conceive of. That God the Father would crush God, not God the Son, but God the human, or Jesus the human aspect of Christ on a tree. What a sacrifice. An amazing, unbelievable sacrifice. And when we consider it, there are two or three things that ought to always fall into our mind. And one of those is that it's the true measure of our guilt. Both corporately and individually. And I'll say it again. That if Jesus came and lived and died to save you alone and no one else, not another soul in all of history, he would still have had to endure absolutely everything that he did. And when we think about these things, we should be challenged repeatedly, and at the same time, on the other end of it, we should be greatly encouraged. The cross is both a measure of our guilt, but it's also a measure of something else that is equally important, maybe more important. And that is, it is a measure of God's love for us. As we reflect upon the cross as Easter is approaching, I pray that we would always be reminded of a few things, and one of those would be the degree of our corporate guilt. but more particularly the degree of my own individual guilt. But please don't stop there. Please don't stay there. Because it is also a measure of the greatness of the love of God for you. That is what makes you special. As we read this passage, what we're finding is that there are few of those closest to Jesus who have gathered a small group in the close proximity to the cross because we know that Jesus has a conversation with them and, and in particular, as we can state at this point, he's actually, they're close enough to him that he can have a conversation with them. Mary, his mother, is there. 
Mary, the wife of Clopas, who we really don't know much about. Mary Magdalene, where she becomes a major character in the resurrection story. We'll be seeing more of her. And we know that she was a woman of ill repute that came to faith in Christ. We also know this, that John, the son of Zebedee, was there in this little small group. And they were close enough to the cross that they actually had a conversation with Jesus. Jesus spoke to them and they heard what he was saying. Remember that when Jesus was arrested, the disciples had scattered like the sheep running from the wolf. But John's back. And John, in real ways, could in very real ways be putting himself at risk being where he is. I mean, what if, what if, this, what if the blood of Christ is not enough to, to, for those who have brought Jesus to this? He let his fear overcome him for a time, but eventually he overcame his fear. And he will become one of those who speaks very greatly and most strongly about this Christ for the rest of his life. And he will live to be an old man, unlike some of the others. That his life from these days forward will be fully and absolutely dedicated to the furthering of the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world. And I just want to say this one more time because if you don't get anything else out of this this morning, maybe this is it in a nutshell. That the cross is a measure of the degree of our corporate guilt. It's also a measure of my individual guilt. It's also the greatest measure of God's love for us. Please don't ever think of the other two without remembering the third. Mary is there, the mother of Jesus. She's not mentioned very much in the Gospels at all, just in the birth narratives at the beginning and in hardly any at all. Till now she appears near the foot of the cross as Jesus is hanging there, breathing his last breaths in this world, in this life. I wonder if maybe now she was reflecting back upon that message that Gabriel, the angel, had brought to her and to Joseph 30-something years earlier about this son that would be born to them. Gabriel had said, you will 
bear a son and call his name Jesus, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high, which the Lord will give him, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. You wonder what's going through her mind at this point. Has she given up on that? Mary was a mother. A mother who loved her son, whose heart is crushed, broken, and grieved at what is transpiring. When the angel had appeared and given the message about the coming son, he had told her that a sword would pierce your heart. And she knows the reality of that. Can you imagine being her, watching and listening? Certain fragments of the visible church have adopted what uh, what might in, in a sense be described as a form of Mary worship. Mariology, where people actually pray to Mary. And that sort of thing. There is no biblical basis for that. At all. We need to understand that Mary was a very, very special lady that God chose for a very, very special purpose. But she was every bit as human as you and I are and she remains every bit as human as you and I are today. She was simply the physical mother of Jesus who loved her son very deeply. She was accompanied by her sister, and we know nothing about her. That would have been Jesus' aunt. Mary, the wife of Clopas, whom we, not really, we don't really know much about her, but then Mary Magdalene, that we've already seen already in our study of John, and she's going to become a bigger part of the picture in the resurrection story that takes place in just a few weeks. John alone is the gospel that uh, records the words spoken to him by Jesus from the cross. And very often in his gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, that he and Jesus had a very special relationship with one another that went beyond that which he had for most of the rest of the apostles, possibly with the exception of Peter.
It's interesting that Jesus entrusts the care of his mother, Mary, into the hands of John. You know, where's Joseph here? We don't have a clue. You know, he's not mentioned much beyond the very beginnings of the Gospels. The assumption is that Joseph is probably dead at this point. But we do know that Jesus had brothers who were in fact living. One of them was James, who would become one of the apostles to the church in Jerusalem. The book James written by him, that letter. It's just interesting that Jesus entrusts the well-being, welfare of his mother into the hands, not of his brothers, but of his spiritual brother, John. Certainly has his reasons, and I'm not going to speculate what in the world those happen to be, but, but it just it goes to show you the measure of the degree of love that John and Jesus had with one another. He's described as the disciple that Jesus loved, that very, very special, close relationship. It appears as though there's no one else on the face of the planet that he would entrust his mother's care to before the apostle And history has tested the fact that he took her into his household and he treated her just as if she were his own mother. Jesus, still alive on the cross, says this. He says, I thirst. I'm thirsty too. Certainly not to the same degree Jesus. We all know what thirst is, right? But I would say to you this morning that Jesus has a thirst that goes way beyond any degree of thirst that you and I have ever known, even if we've had extreme periods of thirst. We understand that at this point Jesus has lost a lot of his blood, and with that, the water that is part of it. Jesus is thirsty in a way that you and I have never, ever been thirsty before. Notice that they gave him sour wine or vinegar. Now, can you imagine being thirsty and maybe you're visiting someone's house, and they say, well, well, I don't have a glass of water I can give to you, but we have some vinegar. How would you like that? Certainly not what we would expect to give to someone to ease their thirst, but that was the only thing available, and so they do that. But Jesus is thirsty. Our thirst was great, very great, greater than we can possibly even begin to imagine. 
We know that water is essential for life, and if there is no water, there is no life. That Jesus is going to die in just just a moment, and that's going to result from a number of things, and one of those is simply fluid loss. Just think of it, we can go without food for days, even weeks, but we can't go more than some hours without water. We read the other Gospels, we find out that there are other details that are included in those Gospels that we don't find here that have to do with this period where Christ is still hanging on the cross. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now when you think about darkness in the Bible... You might think about the darkness that fell upon Egypt. Remember that, one of the plagues? We understand that darkness very often in the Bible is a sign of God's judgment. So we understand that this darkness that fell upon the world was was a, a, a sign of God's judgment upon mankind for what they have done. To his son. As we study the gospel of John. We've seen Jesus very often depicted as light. As the light of the world. In chapter 8 verse 12. Jesus said this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. But will have The light of life. Do we understand? Do you understand there's a sense in which this darkness, this is like the last effort of the the forces of evil and wickedness, which are part of this picture, doing its best to overcome Christ. But it fails. Like everything else has failed. That the light of Christ will shine even more brightly as a result of it. And I want to remind us that early on in the Gospel of John that he says that you are the light of the world. Speaking to believers like you and I, that there's a sense in which people see the light of Christ as they look at us. We are the bearers of that light into the darkness of this world, a world that would be absolutely dark morally if not for the presence of Christ. Matthew writes at about the ninth hour that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus dreaded the cross, and you can certainly understand why. 
He knew of the torment. He knew of the torture. But there's something I would imagine that stood out in his mind even more than anything else. And that would be that brief moment when he would truly and fully and completely understand and feel and and experience their forsakenness of God. His greatest torment of all. At this point, Jesus says, it is finished. And what's he talking about? There's a sense in which it is the real finish of some things. But it certainly is not the finish of everything. It's the finish of his torment. It's all done. He's endured the trial. He's endured his arrest. He's endured his scourging. He's endured his crucifixion. That's all behind him. The only thing left is death. He dies. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We need to understand something that that is his human spirit. Jesus had a human spirit too. Not talking about giving up the Holy Spirit. Because we know that at death, our spirit separates from our physical being, our body. It's true for everyone who dies. It had to be true for Jesus too. His physical body had ceased to be living. It is dead as a doornail. Have you ever seen someone who's dead? I'd imagine everyone in this room has. And, there, and, and, and the reality is this, is we know that there is a look of death, that when someone is dead, you look at them, you know it. You can tell that there is no life left in that person. No one has to tell you that they're actually dead. You know it. You see it. You sense it. You feel it. Jesus has that look. Anyone would have said the man is dead. The light of life is simply gone out. And yet there are so many in history who've done everything they can to try to undermine the gospel and this, that, and the other. So much so that a group of them have come up with what's called the swoon theory. That Jesus really didn't die on the cross, that Jesus looked like he did, and he was right on the verge of being dead, almost dying, but he didn't quite die. 
And so when they put him in that tomb, the only thing he did was just take up life again. He wasn't resurrected from the dead. Do you understand? That's the whole reason for this is to deny the resurrection of Christ. It's nonsense. For lots of reasons, and one of those, you need to understand that these Roman soldiers who did this, who did this crucifixion, who were part of this death squad, they saw death all the time. When someone was dead, they knew it. There was no fooling them. Other people may have doubted it, but they didn't doubt it one bit. Because the day was lingering on, and remember that the day of preparation was upon him, and Passover was right there, you know, and all these Jewish people were concerned about being able to participate, particularly the priests. They asked that the legs be broken. And remember this, the way that people die from crucifixion is they, they, you know, they had nails through their ankles and sometimes there was a little step there that they stood on because they had to push themselves up every time they took a breath. And eventually they died from asphyxiation because they no longer had the strength to push up to breathe air in. So very often to make sure that they really were dead, they would break their legs so they could no longer push up. But when it came to Jesus, these men knew without a doubt that he was dead. There was no need to break his legs. He was dead as a doornail. Some people today may doubt that Jesus actually died on the cross. But everyone who was there knew it. And no one doubted it. Mark and Matthew and Luke, they revealed to us at the time that Jesus died that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember that curtain that separate, separated the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies? Every morning and every evening, the priests went into the holy place the bread of the bread of the presence was and the lamp was there it was only once a year that they went behind the curtain into the holy of holies or the most holy place that curtain served a purpose and the surface the purpose was to so that there's a clear separation from sinful man and holy god so we need to understand that when this Curtain, it was, it was not your typical curtain. It was not like the curtains you have in your household. This thing was inches thick. It weighed hundreds of pounds. It's nothing that could have been torn very easily. But it was ripped from top to bottom. God saying this, no longer is there this separation between holy God and sinful people. That curtain was torn that you and I would come into God's very own family. 
and symbolic of the sin. And when we consider it, we need to remember this, that when Christ died, he bore it all. He took it all. All my sin and all of your sin. It also shows us this picture, and that is that through Christ, you and I have direct access to God. The dividing wall for us is gone. Matthew writes that the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who were fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Wow. A prelude to the resurrection to come in just a few days. Who these particular saints are or were, we don't have a clue. We know that they were buried in tombs close by, so it wasn't Moses. We know that and some of the other people. Matthew and Mark wrote that the Saturian declared, surely he was the son of God. So it was obvious to this Roman soldier when he had seen and experienced everything that he had in those hours before. Luke writes that the last words spoken by our Lord immediately before his death were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I wonder how many of our brothers and sisters in Christ have had that same prayer or made that same statement. Because we realize this, that you know, the history of the cross doesn't end with Christ. That we have had many brothers and sisters down through the ages who have been martyred. They've given their life for Christ, and very often it's been through crucifixion. What will be your last words when your time comes? I would imagine for many it would be, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. According to Mark, one of the centurions at this point said, truly, this man was The Son of God.
So Jesus is dead. Really? Truly. How sad would it be if that were the end of the story? If that were the end of the story, you and I probably wouldn't be here this morning. But it's not. There's more of the story to come. And you know what? There's more of your story to come. Some of you have lived your life as far back as you can remember in Christ. You never remember a time when you were not a believer. That's not true for a lot of us. There's a sense in which you're blessed if you happen to be one of those, those people, but at the same time, I think there's some value for some of us who lived outside of it for a while. That there's a sense in which maybe it's, maybe it's even more special for us because we saw, we, we found out where we were apart from him. And we know that a time came when he drew us to him. Jesus is dead.